0: Hey everybody, this is Chris from the Sausage to Science. Before uh, this episode starts, I just wanted to let you know that each year the Human Biology Association distributes five travel awards of up to $750 each to student members to be used in support of their travel to the annual meeting. The award is open to all members residing in North America. Priority will be given to those presenting a paper or a poster at the HBA meetings and to those who've not yet received a student travel award. So go to our website, humbio.org uh, forward slash student hyphen travel hyphen awards to learn more and submit your application. Not enough people do this. Everybody, welcome to the Sausage of Science. This is Chris. I am on my own today. Um, we are going to be talking to Dr. Shana Lou Levy. She is at the. Um, she is an assistant professor of psychology at Durham University in the UK, but trained in anthropology and psychology. She actually got a BA in anthropology at McGill, then an MA in bioanthropology at Cambridge, and a PhD in psychology at Cambridge. But her training is primarily in anthropology, and we are going to be um, talking to her about her research. She studies child development and social learning, especially among kids in forager and hunter-gatherer societies, and uses a variety of methods to do that. We're going to be talking to her about two papers in particular. She had about nine come out last year and one come out this year, so please check her out, and we'll, we'll put these all in our uh, show notes but the two articles we'll be talking about today are peer learning and cultural evolution uh, with a series of co-authors in child development perspectives and then another article titled child and adolescent foraging new directions in evolutionary research which came out in evolutionary anthropology so without further ado let's talk We always start off the same way by finding out more about the scientists themselves and how they're made. So tell yeah. us about you. Where Where are you from? How'd you get into both anthropology and psychology? Because yeah. I am not one of the biological anthropologists who poo-poo psychology. I want to know how you defeated the Cartesian dualism of, of anthropology and psychology. So
1: like, don't tell anybody, but I'm not a psychologist. I don't landed in a psychology. I call myself an undercover anthropologist. So I'm here walking amongst them. And in my courses, I teach anthropology (laughs) to, to my students.
0: But you have a degree in psychology. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. So I did my undergrad in cultural anthropology. And then I switched into biological anthropology as a top master's to kind of convert into some of that quantitative stuff and fill those gaps that I was lacking. And I had planned to study evolutionary anthropology. But the advisor that I'd been working with fell ill. And at the time I was starting a master's and it was funded. So I kind of had to do it and I had to find somebody else to fill the gap. And I just, I opened a very famous book called hunter gatherer childhoods. And I went through the list of contributors and looked at who else was at Cambridge at the time. And the only other person was uh, Michael Lamb who happened to be in psychology so I knocked on his door and I said hey you will supervise me because (laughs) I need help and he put me in touch with Barry Hewlett and Adam Boyette and all and Alyssa Crittenden and all the people that I was collaborating with and then he took me on as a PhD student so I've never actually been trained in psychology but he's just like a super open-minded psychologist who loves anthropology and anthropologists and brings that experience to everything he does. So I just had like the most welcoming, awesome kind of PhD experience of like loads of anthropologists and psychologists who all worked on kids on my, my committee. I put that in air quotes because we don't really have committees in, in UK PhDs, but I made myself a little nest of, of grandparents and parents to take care of me. And I just had the best time. Like I loved, the PhD
0: time. I love Um, that so much for a variety of reasons. One, because (laughs) I relate to it. I had a a very, very similar experience sort of stumbling forward going, I don't care what discipline you're in. Just, (laughs) you know, like, like I like all this stuff and I think it's all interesting and important. So you're in the UK, clearly you're not British by birth no. and like no. dialect. So back us up a little bit. How did you, yeah. what's your so, background?
1: Yeah, I grew up in Canada. I loved being in Canada. It was a great place to go to grow up, Montreal. As a teenager, you can take risks and also be completely safe because it's just one of those places, right? And then um, in my late adolescence, <laughs> I actually spent a couple of years at um, a wilderness survival school. And there we were learning to do all these crafts And how to collect food. And we were constantly being told hunter-gatherers do this and hunter-gatherers do that. And I wasn't exactly convinced by it all. So that kind of led me into research because I wanted to understand, like, what do hunter-gatherers actually do? And so then I did um, an undergraduate degree in cultural anthropology with an amazing, um, open-minded anthropologist, Colin Scott. And so he was one of the first hunter-gatherer researchers. I didn't even know it was a field. And at that time, and I think it's still running, we had a great program at McGill called Canadian Field Studies in Africa. So I spent three months all over East Africa with a group of 30 other undergrads, and we were being taught just by the most amazing African scholars, both in anthropology and ecology. And in preparation for that, I took a Swahili class, and I was not paying attention on my computer. And I found a parenting blog that linked to that hunter-gatherer research book. And I was like, the hunter-gatherer childhood story uh, edited by Michael Lamb and Barry Hewlett. And I was like, this is what I want to do. Like, I was like, this is it, hunter-gatherer childhoods. That's what I want to study. So it's kind of funny that I ended up working with both Michael and Barry unplanned, right? But in a way, it was like the perfect pathway to my development as a scholar and allowed me to have a foot in every door. And I think that's one of the special things of like studying kids because kids are in every discipline. We study kids because kids are so foundational to culture. So we study them in human geography and we study them in anthropology and in psychology and in human biology. And because kids are at the nexus of, you know, of biological development and we have these long childhoods and they're, they're just little sponges for soaking up culture. Um, it just makes a perfect storm for inter- interdisciplinary research. So, yeah.
0: And yet we, and I love your excitement. So it must be, uh, it's, and I imagine it has to be absolutely essential working with kids to have that level of excitement (laughs) all the time. And as you know, kids are understudied, right? So one, I want to uh, cite the articles because you had, you know, and like I said, you can say whatever you want. You had a literal shit ton of pieces come out last year. You had like nine or 10 articles last year. There's already one coming out this year. So at my university, you're you're going up for tenure already, right? (laughs) So the other thing I want to say is it's wonderful to hear, like this is a human biology podcast. A lot of our grad students who listen are in biological anthropology and in Human Biology Association, we don't get enough human behavioral ecology. And one of the things I think it's really important to emphasize is you can study cultural anthropology, from an evolutionary perspective. Absolutely. That's the piece yeah. that I, I, re- I completely ended up in a psychology yeah. lab for the evolution stuff to try to piece it all together. I had a cultural person, a bio person, and an evolutionary psychologist on my committee to try yeah. to get at what you're articulating. Right.
1: Yeah. And it makes it so much more fun. Right. Because you're all of a sudden figuring out, oh, wait, are we talking about different things? Are we talking about the same things? There's a whole different vocabulary, whole different expertise. It's much easier when we when we like train students about like find the gap. That gap is not necessarily it's at the intersection of disciplines. That's where that gap is the most interesting. Otherwise, you're kind of burrowing. Right. You're just like going deeper and deeper underground and nobody above ground is paying attention to that burrow. But at that intersection is like above ground where I think it has the biggest impact. And it's so much more fun there because you get to have, you know, I go to the culture meetings, I go to the the human biology meetings, I go to the psych meetings, I have loads, I go to the animal behavior meetings. I would just at, at one, and I get to learn all this stuff and it makes me rethink what I'm seeing and what I'm experiencing in the field too.
0: Fantastic. So let me um say the the names of the papers we're gonna talk about right now. Peer Learning and Cultural Evolution came out in Child Developmental Perspectives last year with you, and you can name all your authors if you want. I will surely butcher their names. And uh, another piece that you're co-author on called Child and Adolescent Foraging, New Directions in Evolutionary Research in Evolutionary Anthropology. So both these pieces are amazing. We're going to link all this stuff in our notes, but one of the things that I wanted just to start off is just to... These are review papers and there's a lot of forager, hunter-gatherer, researchers communicating in here. But I first want to like zoom in on your work and what it looks like for you when you're in the field. Who are the let humanize the people that you work yes. with for us, if you would.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So Bayaka are just the I work in one village. So I think I've I've been noticing recently that me and my colleagues, we say Bayaka, but actually Bayaka are a really diverse group, and there's a lot of them throughout the Congo Basin and related communities. So I work in one village with uh, in what can only be described as a very extended family of people who are both hunter-gatherers, so bayaka, but also bandongo fisher farmers who are their neighbors with whom they maintain fictive kin. And these communities spend um, about six months of the year in the forest hunting and gathering, and the rest of the year in a village where they kind of cooperate on labor and exchange labor. And it's easy and we all do it when we talk about hunter-gatherers is like make these general generalizations but I think when you're talking about the people to me I'm like thinking about specific individuals who like are my friend are my friends and I feel like are my collaborators in research and thinking about writing a paper about in evolutionary anthropology because we come from a different writing tradition of science being objective we kind of write out all the contributions that local communities have on our work But actually all my research ideas are inspired by conversations I have like around a fire or watching a parent with a kid or kids with other kids doing stuff. And then I talk to them about it and then they tell me things and then that kind of inspires these research papers and I develop hypotheses around those things and then I go out and test them. So there's a lot of feedback with the community and I really owe them my career. Like if it wasn't for them, I, w- I would not be a researcher. Like I love them. And sometimes when I think about leaving academia, as we all do, right? I'm going to start a farm somewhere. I can't can't take this precarity anymore. Anthropology department's closing all over the UK. But then I'm like, oh no, I have to, the Biaca like, they've given me a lot and I have to go back and deliver on the things that I've promised to them. Um, So it really is a very like dynamic and very like emotional relationship. And I wish as more on the sciencey side, we we wrote with the affection that all of our colleagues have for the people that they work with. And I wonder if there's a way we can make that happen eventually.
0: I love that. I also, um, I got mentally distracted wondering why all of us dream of quitting our day jobs to to (laughs) have farms right right. farms are fucking hard to run i don't know what makes us think we're gonna quit and have an easier time with them (laughs) well and i think your papers make that point so let's get into them because the skills that these kids are developing like again we talk about farming and we talk about hunting these are not easy skills to acquire so let's just first back up and talk about the like the cultural evolutionary theory around social learning, right? So we have a uh, horizontal, vertical, and oblique. What are those styles and what are the predictions of those?
1: Yeah, so we have our human ability to adapt culturally to all these environments um, is really founded on our ability to transmit knowledge from one generation to another or within generations. So when we talk about vertical transi- transmission, we're talking about parent-child transmission. And this leads to quite conservative across generations, you know, you get this high fidelity transmission, your mom teaches you how to bake a cake, then you take that family recipe and you pass it on to your kids, right? Then we also have horizontal transmission or peer transmission, which is a little bit more like uh, a viral contagion, like things get passed on from one person to another really quickly. Like if we think about the craze of TikTok dances, that would be an example, just spreads like wildfire throughout a generation. Sometimes it extinguishes very quickly and other times it gets maintained as part of the cultural repertoire. And then we also get oblique transmission, which is the transmission between somebody from a younger generation and somebody from an older generation who's not their direct parent. And that type of transmission tends to be for skills that are highly specialized. So if somebody invents something new and that new thing is much better than the thing that existed before, then it makes sense to learn from that individual, even if they're not your parent. And all of these different um, cultural transmission mechanisms or rather pathways are part and parcel of how knowledge is transmitted across generations, but there's also different expectations and rates by which they're transmitted.
0: I think most of us would assume, and I think that like sort of the the assumption by most people is that we learn from our parents, Mm -hmm. right? That that's the preferred mode, right? Right. But what you're, you're like, you you combine empirical, observational, quantitative data to show that sometimes learn, like you said, TikTok, sometimes it's better to learn from your peers. What are some of the variables that that cause a kid to maybe want to learn something from peers instead of parents? What are some of those Yeah,
1: absolutely. So I think there's a few variables. One is just that... Parents have different bodies than kids. So if, for example, in a hunter-gatherer society you're trying you're a kid and you're trying to hunt with a spear, you're not gonna be able to do that with an adult spear. And it's gonna be really hard to learn from an adult to do that. So other kids will have adjusted that technology to match their smaller size and lesser strength. And so kids in Congo, for example, go out with these spears made from palm fronds for hunting rats. So they're hunting smaller prey. And that knowledge and that technology is maintained only by other kids. And so that's one way in which you might be primed to learn from other kids. Um, Another is when you're trying to learn about things related to peer cultures, uh, related to things like fashion or food or slangs or all those things, which are things that we kind of forget. We forget when we talk about culture and Dorsa and I, Dorsa Mir, who's an amazing colleague of mine, are working on this. And we actually just submitted a paper on this where we're like, hey, kids' cultures are cultures. And we need to be thinking about them from an evolutionary perspective because like 50% of the world's population is kids. They're under 15, right? Or, well, historically now maybe more along 30%. And they have their own cultures that we know almost nothing about. And those cultures are undergoing also their own pressures for cultural evolution. So it seems that when it comes to social things and when it comes to things related to those peer cultures, kids much prefer to learn from their friends. And that, what I find really interesting, so a lot of people's like... Journeys into studying specific topics, or like I did this, or at least for psychologists, is like I did this research in Germany or in the UK or in the US. I found these things. Now I want to see if these things generalize elsewhere. I've kind of had a backwards journey, right? I've gone yeah. from studying hunter gatherers, and I'm like, oh, might I see these trends elsewhere? And we're finding them everywhere we look. Like my colleague Jing Su, who's on the here, um cultural evolution paper. She works in China where there's strong norms for vertical transmission. And there's still loads of kids learning from other kids, even though it might not be what adults prefer. So even in places where you would expect it the least, we're, see- we're still seeing it. And then in other places like where I work, that's really endorsed culturally for kids to learn from other kids.
0: I, I raised tri- triplet boys, right? They're oh they're, <laughs> they're in college now. So I, I actually thought, thank you. I thought about all this stuff all all the way through, like who they're mm-hmm. learning from, we sent them to a more diverse school because we knew that they have privilege. They're going to be fine. And that you they're going to learn more that way than, absolutely. and they did, they learned more yeah. because it was a failing school. So they actually learned more from their peers than they did in the classroom. Uh-huh. And they learned. So I'm, I'm sort of just sort of geeking out yeah. at the moment. Cause I, I so love this research and I, and Thanks. I, I yeah. think about child development all the time for, <laughs> for that reason. So, Let's, let's toggle to hunting because that gives us a little bit more uh, to like focus in on and grab a hold of because hunting's a really specific skill it's like mm-hmm. teaching your kid farming like we said you know when they're young like they're they're developing some skills that like later on you, you don't have a chance to develop those again so mm-hmm. you argue or you you make a point that hunting shouldn't, like child hunting shouldn't just be considered from a play theory perspective mm-hmm. as training or as selection to refine skills for later in life, but that they actually are selection for now. Can you explain yeah. that?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So I should give a shout out here to my colleague, Ed Dunes, yes, who's really the person who not only
0: said this that idea, again. but who's inspired.
1: Oh, yeah, sorry. Um, so I should give credit here to my colleague, Ed Dunez, who's an amazing ethnoecologist and who's been working on kids' contributions to foraging and their knowledge. And those ideas that um, we wrote a section together in that paper are really based off of his ideas and, and me kind of latching on because I love them so much. Um, and he's developed this amazing um, concept that there's, imagine two concentric circles. And the inner circle is like your not your sphere of use, so it's things you use every single day, and at the outer circle is things that you know how to do but you don't use that often. And if those circles overlap completely, then you absolutely maximize your output. But if there's a change in the in the system, then you're kind of fucked, for lack of a better word, because you you can't adapt. You kind of make a more efficient system when the the sphere of things that you know how to do is bigger than the sphere of things you use on a daily basis. And he has come up with this model that kids really maintain that sphere of knowledge that is kind of outside of adults' daily things because adults are kind of producing, producing, producing. But it maintains all this extra knowledge that if you have this ecological change really matters. And that's because the the foods that kids are collecting are fallback foods. They're foods that are constantly available, usually birds and rodents and really like quite literally low hanging fruit. And they're always available. And they're not always like the best foods is not doesn't come in a high package. It's like I watched a group of 12 boys hunt two you know, hand sized rats and then share them amongst themselves. So everybody got one bite of food. But you can imagine that in periods of resource shortfalls, it actually really does matter to have those foods available. And he found amongst um, Masa and Musi, who are pastoralists and agriculturalists in Cameroon, that in these periods of resource uh, resource shortfalls, 30% of the food that kids were eating were these self-provisioned snacks from wild resources. So that's a big source of nutrition when you're already small, already vulnerable, already have high caloric needs. And I think what I love about that example, too, is that those are not hunter-gatherer societies, but the kids are hunting and gathering. So the kids are literally holding knowledge that the adults don't have. And I've been doing so much research into this now, and we see it in so many places. I read this amazing paper about the uh, Second World War in Japan and how kids were a lot shorter because there was a lot of food scarcity um, in Japan during the Second World War and during the Allied occupation shortly after. And there's all this amazing evidence that kids were going out foraging with other kids. And these are urban kids who were shipped off to the countryside who are out with their friends collecting nuts and berries and all, all these other things and who are even inventing ways of collecting snails that they then bring back to their parents who then cook, cook them up and feed them to the kids so the kids are doing such amazing work and david lancey has this great term he calls kids the reserve labor force so kids are off playing and hanging out but they're holding in reserve knowledge and they're and they're reserve labor for if things go wrong all of a sudden kids kick into gear and are able to help and the knowledge that they hold is that's really different from the knowledge of adults really helps them do that
0: I'm having like one I'm having flashbacks to when I was a little kid just sitting around fucking with ants and worms and like
1: absolutely in the garden
0: just like I yeah. had that world I was honed in on. I'm like I knew where yeah. everything lived and in the paper uh, I think it was it, it, it was uh, Alyssa's field site where I talked about the kids and the mice.
1: Yeah like, no the- Alyssa's was the weaver bird's.
0: Okay, but yeah. Okay, so could you, uh, rather than I, I do it? Could you detail some of that? Give yeah, us some of those absolutely. Details? Yeah.
1: So, Alyssa Crinton's made this amazing observation that Hadza kids in certain seasons will go out and build these sticky traps that collects weaver birds, and sometimes they eat those birds, but most of the time they play with it. So they'll make necklaces and stuff like that, and she calls it like playing with food, right? Which you know kids do on their plate, but they're, they're like adornments. And it seems that kids all over the place are really into birds. Like my kid right now, he's three and a half. We have a bird book and we sit at the window and and look up different birds. He's like, loves it. And kids, hunter gather kids all over the world, world specialize in hunting birds. Definitely Hudza, definitely Bayaka. And I think one thing that's really interesting, because you were talking about ants and worms, is that a lot of the species that kids are paying attention to are indicator species. They're the first species to be impacted when there's climate change. Birds are one of those, certain songbirds are the are the first to be impacted to have changes in their range, changes in their song, toads and frogs, loads of different types of insects. And in fact, there was one recent study in Madagascar that showed that kids had more knowledge of invasive plant species than adults. So kids are these sentinels exactly like you're talking about keeping track of they're paying attention to all the new things happening in their environments and I think if we let them they could also be the first to signal when the system's out of whack right when the knowledge they have is starting to be out of date with what adults know because they're paying attention to all these species and frankly they're hunting them they're eating them right um and These are the first species to be impacted by climate change or logging or all these other major environmental moments.
0: And that that, that speaks to the the implications, which we'll unpack in just a a second in in more detail. But as you were talking to, and I love you, you said the words, I didn't have to ask the question, but it reminded me of when we talk about you know, why do they have big chunky teeth? Well, so they can Mm. eat fallback food if they absolutely need to. Right. I love that. And I just started thinking like, oh my God, they they do the fallback foods. Like our kids are keeping our fallback foods in our repertoire. Mm -hmm. So all the things that you might not, and I ask my students this all the time, like, what would your fallback food be? Like if you were starving, like what, what is the last thing that you would consider consuming in your cabinet? Now I'm going to ask them, what they used to stick in their mouth when they were a little kid, because that might yeah. be a better indicator.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I think until very recently, like, kids would go out and collect apples. They would collect mulberries. Like, I remember being with a woman who, who who got quite emotional because she saw a mulberry tree, and she was like, oh, my God, I remember being a kid and eating this. And it was like a feral mulberry tree, you know, like, at a highway stop, like, in the middle of, of nowhere in Oregon, right? So... I think because we're growing a little less food yeah. and kids have a little bit less chance to play outside, then in terms of fallback food, those resources are disappearing. But kids are doing other things in our culture, in Western culture with access to technology. That's quite innovative. Like adults are making the technology, but kids are reinventing and redeciding how they should be used and how they should be used to share information. And in some cases with these climate movements, these student strikes for climate and stuff like that, they're using this tool for like to absolutely disrupt the system, and I love that because these kids are getting together and they have this critical mass through through this social media that's not designed to disrupt the system necessarily, right? In fact, and we we could argue, or at least not in the way that the youth want but then they're they're reappropriating um these technologies to serve their purposes to serve their purpose and to make a different world. And so Dorson and I our papers actually called children as agents of cultural adaptation because we really want to rethink what kids are doing in terms of literally changing their communities and their cultures.
0: I love that. I love that and um it it speaks to something that that I always well i always emphasize to my own kids right like you don't need to wait till you get a degree or whatever to be an active contributor to culture you became an active contributor to culture the moment we you were born right like we we have modified the world around you so so you've already been partaking you've already been a participant you might as well have some agency in that um so yeah we used to have a, a a a a K through 12 like outreach program here in Alabama before covid i now i'm motivated to get it going again so i can sort of like bring some of this but you you mentioned something about the the toggle from uh being out to sort of more computer based playing, you know, I, and I raised three of those kids, right? I, I banned them from all electronics until they were old enough to need them for class. And as soon uh-huh. as they got them, they became gamers, right? Yes. And now like one of them is going to college for it. So kudos to you kids.
1: That's awesome. going
0: dad up. Well, let, me, let me get back to you. You touched on this a little bit, the implications, right? What are the implications for having a better understanding of how kids learn for the people that you work with. You mentioned yeah. some of those a second ago, but let's bring those up yeah. in the mix.
1: I think for the people that I work with, first and foremost, it's an acknowledgement of how incredibly adapted and important the way that their the way that their culture raises kids is. There's a lot of exportation of child development policies and programs that tries to make other people like us and that's not great like we should be paying attention to what people do and seeing what the benefits are of that first before we even think about whether or not they need an intervention right so I think that's just first and foremost like not only do they accurately tell me all the benefits of learning but when I read educational research I find those same themes the role of storytelling in generalizing um, and in behavioral flexibility the role of peer learning and increasing knowledge and being generative and allowing kids to have knowledge that neither of them had before like there we know from the 70s and 80s that that's happening early developmental research right but still we for some reason when we export especially especially schools, we expect a teacher to be sitting at the front of the classroom doing an information download. And it's just out of touch with how we know kids learn generally and with how especially kids learn in these communities. And it's a shame because these communities have some of the lowest access to school. And when they do go to school, the lowest success in school, it's an utter mismatch between how school could be structured to capitalize on what they know and to capitalize on how they learn, so that they can get the knowledge that they find relevant, which is counting money and knowing their rights, as opposed to trying to make them little bureaucrats in a part of the world where there's no jobs for bureaucrats, right? So I think that's one one impl- implication. That's the main one.
0: Pretty significant. What about? So you said you 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 became You started with an interest in foragers, and and now are interested in in. rest of the world the rest of us start with an interest in what's around us and realize Mm -hmm. wait so tell us uh, what are the implications for this research for understanding uh, non-hunter-gatherer people and learning
1: the observation that kids are hunting and gathering in non-hunter-gatherer societies where my colleagues alaria and also zach garfield um are trying to now do a little bit more quantitative research of this and think about you know quantify These zones of knowledge that kids hold. So that's one of one of them. Um, Another is thinking about how kids learn from other kids in different cultures. So I talked about um, China. Um, All my colleagues were on this paper and this is a strategy I recommend to early career scholars is write a paper about a grant that you want to write and then you have a paper and great background for the grant and then you can already show that you're an expert in the thing the grant is about so that's what we did with that child development perspectives paper we as a team wrote this paper which pulled on all of our expertise so it was really easy to write because everybody you know wrote one paragraph based on what they knew and we stitched it together and now we've gotten this pretty big grant to study peer imitation in four cultures so two in congo in Scotland and with Chinese Americans in the Seattle area to try and understand how cultural values um, for childhood autonomy versus conformity and uh, a cultural value on peer versus adult socialization shapes how children imitate peers or adults in these experimental tasks, which have only been done in the West and not been done elsewhere. But also in daily lives where it's a lot more responsive, because obviously when we do experiments, it's so controlled that it doesn't correlate at all with, you know, it might happen in the experiment, but it might never happen in daily life. And so we're going to also collect these um, videos of kids going about their daily lives to understand Not only who they're imitating, but also how what the other people are doing in terms of pedagogical intent is also shaping their imitation. So we've just we just received ethical approval, which was our first hurdle. And um, now we're buying all these funny little objects that have no names to try and do these tasks um, to see, you know, who do kids imitate in terms of naming and in terms of these tools. puzzle box tasks and stuff like that. That was
0: a hell of a mic drop answer right there, right? <laughs> so you have a lesson, listeners on how to develop a, a review paper, two, how to develop a review paper to get a grant, and three, how to get a grant, four, how to set up a big field site so that you don't feel overwhelmed <laughs> uh as i am feeling right now as i get ready to go off for two months uh literally by myself for half the oh time right yeah yeah i mean it's like we are we are grown-ups doing work that we were trained for but if we yeah. don't have the right support it is still terrifying Absolutely. and yeah. overwhelming so thank you for that answer and thank you for yes, your 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 energy this has been delightful <laughs> And Thanks. You... It's been
1: delightful for me. Any excuse to ramble on about kids, and I'm thrilled. <laughs> oh, it's
0: so so fascinating. And it sounds like you have—I won't volunteer you as an advisor for people to to to, <laughs> to submit their PhD applications to, but it sounds like you have a lot of research going on that people could get involved in and learn oh, and be trained in. I'm
1: desperate to have PhD students. Um, we don't have a lot of funding for that at the university, but I'm happy to work with students towards funding themselves, which is also better for their careers. So having them write grants and stuff like that. And we have some competitions to do that. And I will also be shortly recruiting a postdoc to do a lot of video coding with the support of research assistants. And their job would be to kind of develop a whole new way of coding um, imitation using video. And I think it's a great postdoc because you get to do cultural research without being in the field. So that means you have a lot of time to publish, which is really important for postdocs. And that will include methods work and uh, leading what we hope will be high impact papers. So if there's any postdocs out there who want to come work with me on video coding in England, please drop me a line because I'd love to have you.
0: (laughs) Fantastic. All right, the final question is for fun. Uh-huh. If we can we can uh it's basically what is your skill, hobby, pastime, superpower. So the HBA used to have a talent show. We're trying to get it to come back. So if we can nice. you said you like to go to lots of meetings, so we'll get you at an HBA meeting either in LA this year or next year. And when we do, what what super what what skill talent can we expect you to perform for us?
1: Yeah, it'll it won't. It won't, I won't be able to perform it. But my hobby, my mega hobby right now is uh, planting a garden of only edible perennials because I'm away in the summer. So I can't tend annual plants. So we're, I've been doing loads of research about these like very obscure plants, all that food plants that are like, you know, maintained by one old grandma in an allotment somewhere. And then, you know, she happened to give it to the right person. So they've got great names. So One is called Babington Leeks. Is that not the most British name we've ever heard?
0: It is absolutely, yes.
1: (laughs) Babington, uh, give me a leak for the the black bean soup, right? Yeah. Yeah. Also, a plant called Good King Henry, which is a type of perennial spinach, also a great name. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah. So I'm having loads of fun, just like even learning what these plants are called. So it's been a joy to finally have a garden and um, to finally, you know, be in a place long enough, because as a postdoc, you're often bouncing around, Mm -hmm. not even from city to city, but also country to country. And so it's nice to be in a place for long enough where I can start thinking about, like, what's going to last and it's a fun project for me and my son. Every morning on our way to school, we check that no cats have pooped in our, <laughs> in our box in our raised beds. And then we scoop out the poop and throw it to where the badgers might be scared off by it. And then we go off to school. So <laughs> we're learning a lot about the local wildlife.
0: I love that. As an avid gardener, I am both stressing out about what's going to happen to my garden in April and May when I'm yeah. not there to tend it. <laughs> and I'm also relating to when I was out, the, the neighbor cat. <laughs> love my flower bed and i'd be out there pulling up uh roots and i'd be like what's this and i'd be like
1: Ah, ah, zzz, ah. <laughs> it's so, so gross
0: <laughs> my 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 it is i know my skill is going to be germinate, teaching people to germinate seeds so you and i oh, amazing. okay you. so
1: maybe you could give me give me some advice because good king henry takes four to six weeks to germinate and it needs fluctuating temperatures and also needs to be sown on the top, not in the ground. Yeah. So <laughs> they're like, it always does germinate, however. So yes. I maybe you have some advice on of how I can maximize that.
0: I struggle. It you know, I talked to my mom, I grew up gardening my grandmother, but you know, like nobody has formulas and everybody's ecosystems are different and the world's right? changing. So like every yeah. year my mom and I'll be like I don't know what the hell happened to my tomatoes this year. You know, like we've been doing it this way for a blank number of years. But right, yeah, the, the stuff that's difficult to germinate, I play with a little bit. But it's uh loofah. I was trying to germinate loofah, which has oh, a really, yeah. really long growing season. Yeah. And we have that here, but I couldn't get it to germinate coffee. Yeah, I was trying to germinate coffee. Same thing. Wow. So. Uh
1: That's I, so cool. I get
0: stuff from like strictly medicinal and try to do things similarly like perennials that I can then use as like tinctures or you know oh, I can grind man. up and throw into stuff
1: what are you growing
0: all kinds of whatever we grow yeah. I mean I have a all my whole house every all around it my wife my wife is a green witch and I've always gardened so I grow stuff for her and yeah. she makes she's also a fiber artist so she makes natural dyes and stuff and wow. dyes fabrics and yeah. then makes art and yeah. but, so in
1: a past life, I I did the distance course with Rosemary Gladstar
0: oh yeah that's the best book she's
1: awesome yeah Yeah. I learned so much and I had all my little tinctures but of course you can't travel with that stuff so then I kind of like oh I can't redo this every year this is too much
0: I just try to keep some stuff around I got a dehydrator so I can like you know as I collect stuff and learn about it it takes me a while before I'm willing to stick it in my mouth Right. <laughs> so I need to dehydrate it and have it. I have a whole jar of turkey tail mushrooms. I've been collecting oh, mushrooms and doing right. mushrooming and stuff because you can do that anywhere. So that's something yeah. like yeah, oh, that's I can, important. if I learn mushrooming, I can do that in the field when I'm there.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Awesome.
0: Yeah. All right. Now this is turning into an interview about me. That's not the point. <laughs> Thank that's you so much. Question. It's no, no. Yeah. It's, that that means it's that it's a good interview. It means we had a rapport. So it's been yeah. great to talk to you. I really enjoyed this. It's been
1: this. great to talk to you too. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Awesome. Thank you.
1: Thank you. Bye.
0: Bye-bye. Hey, everybody. Thanks for listening to the Sausage of Science. I've been Chris. You can find me uh, on Twitter, X, whatever the heck they call that sucker, at Chris underscore L-Y. Uh, you can find the Human Biology Association at um on Twitter as well. You can find the Human Biology Association on Facebook. And you can find all of our episodes on um, our website uh, humbio.org or on our soundcloud Uh, so please follow like rate us do all those things it does drive people to the show it does help people learn more about human biological research thanks